So Vinyl Me Please just released the story of Quincy Jones vinyl box set. And this Motley crew here is going to guide you through each of the eight albums. I'm Alyssa Leon Smith, Vice President of Business at Quincy Jones Productions. I've been honored to work with Quincy for eight years now, and I can confirm he really, really is that dude. I'm Sonarin Glinton. I'm a podcast host and a producer. I'm a contributor to NPR's Planet Money, and I have spent a career covering the intersection of the culture and the economy. And I'm Justin Richmond, host of Broken Record and vice president of I Have No Business Being Here. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, man. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So it's really impossible to fully capture Quincy's legacy and his influence on pop culture, entertainment, music history, and beyond in a 30-minute episode. But we are going to try to do the best we can. So let's get right into it. We're going into The Wiz. The Wiz is a soundtrack album, the first soundtrack that we've done so far. And it is the soundtrack version of the film The Wiz, which came out in 1978 with music by Charlie Smalls, who is a prodigy who went to uh, Juilliard. And I did not realize this. And Luther Vandross was one of the writers, which just like drove me crazy. Not the script writer, music writer? Music writer of... Yeah, he wrote Brand New Day and a bunch of so like, wild. Yeah, was like did, yeah, and I was like, how did I miss? And then he wrote he wrote the new songs that were added before I get into the weeds. One of the interesting things to set this the tone or set the time, like we're at possibly the height of black exploitation films. Definitely the height. If not, this this movie probably ends that run because it's a major Hollywood film with a budget of about about $24 million. It only made about $21 million. So the movie was a critical and financial flop. However, the soundtrack was far more successful than the movie itself. This is like prehistory for American pop because it brings together almost every element of Black culture up until that point. In this film... Michael Jackson, Diana Ross are two headliners. It's Michael Jackson's debut. And the music, it's hard to understand how big this was culturally, right? If I think about it, I want to describe it as my Frozen. (laughs) Because this movie came out when I was four years old, right? And the music of it, we played Brand New Day at church. Like that definitely with the Quincy Jones arrangement, this two album, double album, with every single star, Lena Horne, Nipsey Russell, Richard Pryor, Mabel King, all of these like incredible actors and singers. And they're laying down the point where without The Wiz, there would be no off the wall and would be no thriller. And you can see there's three sort of hits that come out of this brand new day, You Can't Win and Ease On Down the Road. And he's on down the road, like, climbed up the charts and was, like I said, as big 
possibly as the movie. When did you guys encounter? The, did you encounter the movie or the soundtrack when you? I encountered the movie, but Same. to be honest, I encountered the soundtrack because <laughs> the movie didn't do it for me, and, and, and it's one of the great regrets of my life. I've actually even shown it to my kids. My kids liked it. Just didn't. Just just you know. But Quincy has one of the great shots in the movie. When they get to Oz and Quincy turns piano. around at the piano, incredible. Is this, oh, is this the scene at the it's, it's, World Trade Center? It, it's, yes. It's, yes. It's, it's Oz turned Studio 54 and Quincy's at the piano and he turns around and there's like, is, is it gold mm-hmm. dust falls on him? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the most beautiful moment maybe in all of cinema and it's worth watching the entire movie for You can't fast forward to that part, but you watch that whole movie and you get to that part and it's, it's beautiful. You know how you guys are talking about, oh, the movie didn't really do it for me. Quincy felt the same way. He always talks about how he didn't want to do this film. He said the only things that he really, really liked about it were the three songs, Home, Ease On Down the Road, and Brand New Day. And he stands by that to this very day. He's like, the movie didn't really do it for me, and I wasn't really interested in doing this project. But Sidney Lumet, who is the director, had given Quincy the opportunity to score his first American film, which was The Pawnbroker, back in, you know, 1963, 1964. Sydney had also gotten him about five more additional films at that point. So Quincy really felt like I need to return the favor. And then that's how he really got on to doing this whole score. So it's kind of crazy that we're all still in this mindset of like, it wasn't really the movie, but the soundtrack was it for me. And God bless Sydney Lumet. I mean, wonderful American filmmaker. Great American filmmaker. Great American filmmaker. Why is this the follow-up to Network? <laughs> Why is he the one picked to do this? <laughs> but, but you know, you know what I think. Of? This is the re- what I was reading about. I had to go watch, you know, YouTube and things like that to remind me of this. And I'm like, okay, so this is the blackest movie <laughs> that black folks get to do a musical, and this will blow your mind. This is one of the surprises. It's directed by Sidney Lumet and written by Joel Schumacher. Yeah, yeah, of, right. Of Batman sure. fame. So I'm just saying, yes. like, imagine. Black Panther. Oh, yeah. With a white director and a white writer. I mean, so you can see there's something that's clearly missing. And that's almost why so much of the music hits it on the head. But Quincy, I feel like at this point, is about to pivot again. And he is in kind of in the zone of being the house band for Black things. Yeah. (laughs) It's essentially like, you know, Roots comes out. It's like, oh, who do we got to? Ah, uh, we're going to go to him, right? Yeah. And this is at the age that he is. He's in his mid-40s. He's about to have, I don't know, what is his third or fourth act, right? This is where essentially Michael Jackson and Quincy come together. Alyssa, do you have any Quincy stories connected to The Wiz? He always has so many stories. It's kind of hard to keep track of them. But when you think about where Quincy was in his life, I think that's a pretty crazy story in and of itself. He did this movie. And then a year after that, they went straight into Off the Wall. And then a year after that, he launched Quest Records. And the first record on that was George Benson's Give Me the Night. And then a year after that, he did The Dude. And then a year after that, he did Thriller. I can't even wrap my mind around how much work he put out in just those, what, five to six years pretty insane to me. But rewinding to The Wiz specifically, Quincy did meet Michael when he was 12. And that's actually a trend with Quincy. He met 
Stevie Wonder when he was 12, Kevin Campbell when he was 12. It's so funny. It's like this magic number for him. But he met him when he was 12. And then when he worked with him on The Wiz, it wasn't until this specific film that Michael really stood out to him. There's the story about how Michael had some lines and he was supposed to pull out a piece of paper from his hat and it said Socrates and he kept saying Socrates and Quincy was the only person who could stand up to him and say, that's not how you pronounce it. And he was really receptive to his feedback. And so that was the moment when Quincy said, okay, you know what? You've been begging me to do your album. I think I'm willing to give it a shot. Epic Records, the label was not really on board to have Quincy on there because he was too jazzy. So of course, bring in Quincy and his ability to just defy all odds. And that's what they did with Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad. So it's really a story about how the whiz, like you said, was just the beginning of all of that. I think about this. One of the things he said, we were, the three of us were sitting at a table. I don't know if you guys remember. And we were talking and I was feeling, I don't know. I was, it was one of those, I was feeling in my mid forties. And I don't know where it came from, but he goes, 45 is the best year. And I was like, looked at me and he's like, how old are you? I was like, I'm 45. Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's the best year. And I'm like, what? And then I realized it was what, 44 when he did The Wiz. When you think of life or you think of your career, right? Imagine if none of the stuff that comes after The Wiz. Literally 25 years, worked with Frank Sinatra, scored films as like a Black guy when that was... Not okay. <laughs> not a, it's still not a thing, really, right? In like the way that, you know, Quincy did it. Like he, he was a, a pioneer of one, you know, in, in so many ways. And then Am I Done?, And to be creatively open enough to see a Michael Jackson at the sort of bubblegum pop phase that Michael Jackson was in, not the, I mean, Michael Jackson was a great talent. That was clear, but it wasn't like the talent that he would become. And to be on the hunt for that at 45, like, you know, in your mid forties. And to think then that the real money didn't even come for another 20 some years, but like the real successes, like his greatest success is at about 50. And which gives me really a lot of hope when you like most artists. are done lo- by what, 35? <laughs> yeah. If they make it to 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like 30, you know. It's I mean, a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Smalls, who wrote The Wiz, died at 43. You know, that's like yeah. a perfect example of just like Quincy at 43 would be, be done. And I think that you can hear the thing that makes Quincy kind of puts him in the ability to be doing the film is kind of what makes the record executives think that he's not the guy to the very, very young person that we just signed. Like, why are we going to let this like old dude, you know, it it just be, it doesn't make this, you know, it doesn't make sense if you're a suit to let the Frank Sinatra guy produce the new album. And that's because we in our, our worlds live in these categories. We're so limited. Mm-hmm. But you know what I was thinking about the categories thing before we move on to the next album is like when I grew up in the world of actual albums, which this is one of, and when you think of categories, why that's important, no joke, in the Tower Records that was in Boston, it was on Mass Avenue. We used to line up on Tuesday to get the albums. Jazz was on the fifth floor or fourth floor rather. And like the pop stuff was on the first floor and like traditional pop would be on one side. And like, you'd have to go pick up a Frank Sinatra album in easy listening, but Ella would be 
four floors away. And he's like, this makes absolutely no sense. Like, it's the same people doing this, the same arrangements, the same, all of those things. But someone decided that Frank Sinatra was easy listening. Quincy was jazz in the jazz section. Like, what do you put? That's what was interesting to me. And like now with playlists and things like that, the categories are easier to mash up. You can make things of your own. But at the time, literally, you might not encounter other music if someone put a label on it in that way. And yeah, I just like yeah. thought about that with The Wiz. Well, Alyssa hinted at like the sheer amount of work that Quincy was putting in around this time. The next album in the set is The Dude. which is remarkable that we're just we're we're just getting to the dude all this great music and we're getting to now the thing that I don't want to be presumptuous but at least in my life and I, I imagine in your guys lives too really defines my early life let's get into some some statistics on this cuz you know some this this record is really crazy dude's recorded and released in 1981 recorded and released in 1981 it's a landmark album for Black music. Spawns five charting singles, four that were top 20 on the U.S. R&B chart, then known as the Hot Black Singles Chart, and two top 20 on the U.S. Singles Chart. The album itself peaks at number one on the R&B chart and number nine on the Billboard 200. It's certified platinum, was nominated for 12 Grammys, features Michael Jackson, Patty Austin, Louis Thunderthumbs Johnson, Quincy Mainstay, Herbie Hancock, Toots from Toots and the Maytels, Stevie Wonder, Sarita Wright, and introduces James Ingram, who's like royalty for 80s and early 90s R&B. James Ingram goes on from this to just be everywhere. You could not listen to the radio without hearing James Ingram. Quincy earns his first Producer of the Year Grammy because of this as well. He'd been up for it three times prior and wins his first one. This album comes out in 81. I'm born in 89, and it's still everywhere when I'm a kid. From the beginning of my consciousness on this earth to like five years old. Same, that's what I think of. Yeah, I heard it almost every damn day, I feel like. And first time I met Quincy, what happened to be in Cuba. And when I got home from that trip, I called my dad. I'm like, you're not going to believe who I met. I met Quincy. He's like, and I thought he was going to say like, wow, like Quincy, you know, like, and and all the things he could mention. He goes, man, do you know when we was playing, because my dad played professional football. He goes, you know what we used to play in the practice room was the dude. He goes, man, we we blast that album every single day. If that don't explain to you how big this album was, that this is what sports figures, you know, like we're listening to, to practice. It's like this album was as big as it could get without it being Michael Jackson, but this album's as big as it can get. I completely agree. This is one of my favorite albums. And my early years, I definitely remember listening to 100 Ways and Just Once. Like those were always playing in our home. My mom and dad loved this music. It was always on. Absolutely. You know, what I think is, is is interesting. If there were social media at the time, Quincy would say, I'm about to brand myself. <laughs> yeah. For well, hold on, hold on. Let's oh, get into this. Let's get into this. Let's just, let's start. Let's go. Let's go back to the beginning. I want Alyssa to take us through this whole thing that we don't get this album without a sculpture. Yeah. Quincy loves to tell the story about how the dude came to be. And basically, he tells it as he and Henry Mancini were walking together 
I think he was in Beverly Hills out here in Los Angeles. Uh, and Henry Mancini is of Pink Panther fame. Yes, mm-hmm. it, um, that Henry. So the two of them were walking around and then they encountered this little antique shop and they were walking around inside and he saw this little statue in the corner and he said it was as if this statue spoke to him. Everything in his body told him, I'm going to be an album. <laughs> and he walked over to it and he looked at it and he was like, man, he's got an attitude. Like, look at that lip. And so he bought the statue and took it home and did some research on it. And it was actually from a farm in South Africa. And a sculpting teacher made these sculptures to help bring in money for the farm. And the sculptor was named Fanazani Akuda. And he was a member of the sculptural movement called the Shona Sculpture. And basically, Quincy knew in that moment, I'm going to make an album and this statue is going to be the face of the album. And so if you look on the cover, you can clearly see the outline of that statue. Also, if you watch Quincy's Netflix documentary that we put out in 2018, there is an actual image of the dude and he walks you through the whole story, which is, it's amazing. I mean... It doesn't really get any better than that. It's also, if you grew up watching The Fresh Prince, would be emblazoned in your brain as the Quincy Jones Entertainment logo, you know. (laughs) You know, and I just think it's funny is that I remember one of the first times meeting you, we were going to talk to Quincy, and it was one of your tasks to bring the statue of the dude. And I was like, I wouldn't pick that thing up. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I remember that. Yeah. scary. (laughs) You got to treat it with care. I'd be terrified. Also, one of the things that it sort of presages when you you were talking about all the people who are on it, and it's a cavalcade of music stars. Johnny Mandel, who arranged for Basie, Greg Gaines worked heavily with Stevie Wonder and spent years working with Quincy. Still to this day? To, yeah, Ernie Watts, the great saxophone player. Just so many people. David Foster did play the piano on this. <laughs> right? It's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's like you just like, what? So the, it starts with, with this sculpture but one of the things that I, I love is like thinking about, you know, the arc of the career because Quincy is ending his deal with AM at the time. And like what you could do is just like he could have just been like, ah, I don't, I'm gonna what I got right on the horizon. does mm-hmm. with your last album with the label that you know you're gonna leave because and he was leaving because he'd already started Quest. You just put something out. You just you just yeah, yeah, go, 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 go to the vault. Yeah, yeah, like, yep, finish my MDRC, I'm out. <laughs> Right. And the, but instead, he's like Babe Ruth or something like it's like, um, this is it's gone to left field. Well, you know what? It, I think I think it goes back to what you were saying about the Wiz. I think I don't know. Actually, this is something I've not asked him, but he must have sensed that this is like a moment. He's having hits with the Brothers Johnson, with George Benson on his own label, with Michael Jackson. <laughs> you know, he's just done off the wall. He's been up for producer of the year three different times by this point. He's starting his own label. I think he I think he must feel like there's no time to waste just emptying the vaults and just putting out a flop. It's like, I think maybe he must have felt, I got to bring it. He is always the type of guy who wants to do everything he can to the best of his abilities. And that really stemmed from his father's advice. And that was do it well or not at all. He will always say, this is why I've been able to remain in the game because I don't just put out music to put it out or I don't just... As he used to shine shoes, he's like, I never used to shine shoes just to shine shoes. Like, it was going to be the best shine shoe that you've ever gotten or nothing. Wow. So that's the type of mentality he's carried with him to this day. 
Yeah, and you think about it, in a way, a lot of his career up until this is being a hired gun, right? And to put out something under your own steam, it's like, well, yeah, I'm leaving. But also the timing of it, right? It's 81. It's not 1960-something. As a middle-aged person, like, I I get that sense. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time on anything, and my name is on this thing, right? And everything I know about this is that A&M really wasn't that excited about the album, didn't really feel, maybe it's because he's leaving and he's starting Quest through Warner, but A&M wasn't really promoting the album, but radio went crazy with it. I mean, again, like, I didn't own the album growing up. I heard this all through radio plates. It was just, it owned radio. A&M starts marketing it all over again once it gets nominated for 12 Grammys. They realize, oh, like, oh, this is something that you've brought <laughs> us. With, yeah. It's just like, it's, 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 it's insane. A couple of things I want to note about the album. I mean, his taste is impeccable because not only does he find great people like James Ingram, which we'll talk a little bit more about, but his, his ear for songs, his taste is incredible because there's a song, I Know Corita, written by the guitar player of Ian Durian and Blackheads, which are like a post-punk new wave group in England. And it becomes a hit in the U.S. on the Hot Black Singles chart. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Just Once, written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Vile, who write on Broadway uh, for the Drifters way back in the day. Okay, from here on in, listen to it and think of a world peace song. And you've lost that love and feeling for the Righteous Brothers. You know, they hadn't had a hit in a while. I think George Benson might have had a hit with on Broadway just before this, but it was covering the Drifters. He brings them back does just once with them. Rod Temperton writes songs on here. Rod Temperton was not nobody. He was in the heat wave, which had like huge singles in the 70s. But I imagine Quincy must have heard something a little deeper in what everyone was just hearing in heat wave because he seems to pluck him out of the group mm-hmm. between his work then with Michael Jackson on, on Off the Wall and then goes on to write Thriller and his work here. He consistently is working with Quincy bringing him these incredible songs. Well, Rod has got the most incredible, uncanny gift for songwriting I've ever seen in my life. And when he was a kid, his parents put him in another room in a little playpen, and they had a radio on the thing. And that's all he did was listen to all the top of the hits, and look what happened. <laughs> Writing all the biggest hits in the world. I don't know that many other producers would have heard Heat Wave and thought, who's doing this? Let me go grab him because this person has some 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 greatness in him. Like that, right? You know, he just wild. knows how to spot him. Wild. There's a Brazilian song, Velas, on here that is like, I don't know where he heard that. I know Quincy loves Brazil, but it's on an Ivan Lins album, which is, you know, this obscure Brazilian artist. And it's just gorgeous reinterpretation of this song. I mean, I, I, it's just, it's mind blowing the way that he's able to spot talent and finds the perfect songs for every project. His Brazilian influences actually go way back to when he was on tour with Dizzy Gillespie. That's where he says he really found that type of sound and ran with it. One of the things I think is interesting about the album is it's a place to introduce Bruce Swedeen, who engineered this album, would also engineer the great Michael Jackson albums. And just the innovativeness of what they're doing in the studio at the time, finding instruments, recording things in different ways. Accusonic process, was it? Yeah, like, he's like what, we're going to invent things? <laughs> like, that is only born out of what he would say. He wasn't doing it for the money, he was doing it for love. More than the other albums, this is not, this is what jazz is, 
So this is what Sinatra is or whatever. This is me in 19, you know, at the beginning of the 80s, of the of my most baller decade. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm about to like, yeah. we're gonna begin with this. You could feel it. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I'm going to do this. He, I think he's about my age right now, if you know what I'm saying. And he wins producer of the year at the Grammys over Lionel Richie and Arif Mardin, who, you know, has crazy hits as well. That's February of 82. April of 82 goes into Westlake, records Thriller. That's out by November of 82. <laughs> the speed. I mean, that's problematic, as we would learn in his life, because that's just a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> like, a that, lot. that's a lot. You know, Color Purple comes right on the, the heels of that, which is produce your first movie and do a soundtrack, which amazing that we have a call back to aneurysms, but the stress of all of this output. I mean, obviously he's always had prodigious output, but do you think there was anything about the aneurysm that made him work any harder or a little harder? I've asked him before and he felt it just made him more grateful to live and to be able to live it more fully. If that meant working, then he would continue to do that. Man, incredible. Alyssa, do you have a favorite? On the dude, just once and 100 ways. I don't know. There's so many. And then for the whiz, I know this is going to be lame, but honestly, the beginning overture, like, mm. it's so beautiful. That is. <laughs> oh, gosh. So probably those. Oh, yeah, that is that is so funny. It's like, yeah, it is so it's pretty long, too. I got to go with 100 ways on, on the dude as well. Closely followed by I bet you wouldn't hurt me. Yeah, I'm gonna, I mean, a hundred ways. I'm just like, how many weddings have I <laughs> like marched down to? And for the whiz, it would be uh man, the whole the whole thing. You can't pick one. <laughs> I can't. It's like I said, it's like my frozen or something. I gotta go with what would I do if I could feel? I gotta go with Nipsey. But ease on down the roads, one A. What would I do if I could feel is like one B. I could cry. I could What would I do if I could feel? What's one of the famous Quincy aphorisms? For this one, I would probably pick, you never have to make a comeback if you never leave. And that's what he always says when you ask him, how have you been able to stay so long? And that's what he says. Don't call it a comeback. Been here for years. Yep, I've never <laughs> left. <laughs> Well, we've eased on into another decade. Click like and click share. Let us know what you think about the podcast. And on our next episode, we're going to delve into the greats of the 80s and early 90s. And those are Back on the Block and Miles, Miles and Quincy live at Montreux. <laughs>